This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 26, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Imagine a country in which the drug war hasn't just ended, but ended 15 years ago. It's a worthy thought experiment, especially if you, like Cato's Trevor Burris, believe the country would be improved. In his chapter in the new book from Libertarianism.org, Visions of Liberty, he describes a world 15 years from the end of the war on drugs. Tomorrow, the world wakes up and decides drug prohibition has been an absolute failure. You and I agree on this. Um, But the question is then, uh, what now? And so moving to a world where uh, drug drug prohibition has ended, where drug use at a very basic level is tolerated, uh, what does that look like? Yeah, my contribution to the the book actually looks hypothetically back from 15 years after this day when everyone suddenly realizes that drug prohibition doesn't work. And it discusses what, what would initially happen. So let's say tomorrow, it's not even decriminalization, so we're talking about legalization. I don't really get into what, you know, should it be 18 or 21 or the different states pass different laws as you'd expect them to, prescription or not, but it's broadly legal, all drugs. And so first thing you'd expect, and this is something I think is very important when we talk about legalization, drug use goes up. Um, some people, some for some reason, some people deny this. They think everyone who wants to do drugs right now is not doing drugs, but but When you make them available in stores and you take away the possibility of incarceration or criminal penalties, there are people who are like, okay, yeah, I'll go get that now. So uh, a related note, we've seen in states like Colorado and uh, Washington that teen drug use, again, uh, marijuana use in particular, it's still illegal for them to possess and use it, but it seems to be either steady or in decline. Yes, and that that is an interesting trend a lot of people have written about because it might be because marijuana is no longer some sort of bad boy drug if your parents are doing it. But then you also see people like my dad, I'm from Colorado, who never would have done marijuana uh, when it was illegal, not only for his career purposes, but he didn't know how to go get it. And now he enjoys doing edibles because of his back and his knee, actually. So those are the people you imagine. And, and the first thing you say about that is, okay, everyone's say, oh, the druggies, libertarians love it when everyone becomes more of a drug user. Well, Unless you think that no one can use these drugs and it's like a, it's a social harm if anyone for any purposes uses these drugs, um, then yes, the fact that drug use goes up is not necessarily a cost. The way of thinking about it is alcohol. Like what is the primary cost of if you banned alcohol, if you actually literally ba- magic button banned it, not like we kind of banned it in prohibition with the black market. The chemistry is no longer available yeah, exactly. to us. Exactly. Well, the primary cost is drinking is enjoyable for most people, and most people who do that are not a problem drinker. So weddings are going to be less fun. Tailgates are going to be less fun. Bars are going to be coffee shops. So it's similar with other drugs. In all other drugs, we generally know that the 80-20 rule applies, and it's true with alcohol, and it's true with heroin, that that 20% of the people, the users, consume 80% of the product. And so mostly what I'm looking at is, so we're going to have people using more drugs, but how do we deal with those 20% of people, say in the opiates case, who are now able to get it in a store? And that's when things get really interesting because you mentioned Colorado. If you go to a marijuana store in Colorado, the amount of products is just astounding of various sorts. And I tried to think about what would happen with opiates in this situation. The first thing to realize is due to something called the Iron Law of Prohibition, 
we have a somewhat artificially kind of created opium market to some extent. Now, the iron law prohibition says when you have prohibited a drug, the smugglers will prefer the highest potency form of the drug. That's why beer disappeared in Prohibition. Yes, basically 700% increase in the price of beer in Prohibition. I always ask students, I say, have you ever tried to smuggle alcohol into a football game? Did you bring a 12-pack or did you bring a flask? So now in our illegal market, we basically only have heroin and increasingly fentanyl, which is killing about 40,000 people a year, which is a which is sort of the apotheosis of the iron law prohibition. Um, it's so potent that the smugglers prefer, but the users aren't demanding it. That's the whole market. So if you're chemically dependent upon opium, you have to kind of take heroin and possible fentanyl, even tainted with fentanyl. Now imagine the store opens up. There are lollipops, there are lozenges, there are patches, there are nasal sprays, there are all these sort of things that take the edge off of the chemical dependence, but maybe don't get you high. A lot of people who are chemically dependent on heroin or opiates don't want to be high every day. Like they can go to work, and we've seen this in sort of safe injection sites where they get an injection before they go to work and then they get one later, but that just returns into normalcy. So now you have the ability to titrate your own dose with your own level of opiate use. And, and presumably the information that people have access to about what their dose is, is widely available Absolutely clear. Yes. Like 4.5% alcohol on this beer. Yes. And that's very important because you just sort of have to think about alcohol. Alcohol causes tons of problems, tons of social problems. And we uniquely with alcohol focus on the problem users, not the non-problematic users. And so I also think about, uh, so we have alcoholics with cirrhosis, all these things. So there's going to be overdoses, but they will know what's in the drugs, as you pointed out. There probably won't be much of a demand for fentanyl. And there also probably wouldn't be that many companies that sell it because the legal liability would be astounding for a drug of which the lethal dose is two to three milligrams. So yeah, in, in this world, uh, looking back on a world with legal uh, drugs, um, what yeah, what does it look like? What does the liability look like for sellers, for uh, manufacturers uh, of things that are, one, addictive, like opiates are, uh, but also where a very small dose could kill you. Yeah, I sort of try to imagine that with some of the rules we have for alcohol. So we have what are called dram shop laws when it comes to alcohol. This is when a bartender can't overserve you. Um, and then if you get into a car accident driving home because the, the bartender knows you're driving, then the bartender can be liable. So I imagine those in various situations, both in terms of causing accidents to other people. And also if you maybe if you give someone a drug that is highly lethal or the potential to be lethal within a very sort of hair's breadth of, of difference. And so if you could sue a fentanyl manufacturer without proper labeling or proper protections uh, for killing your husband, for example, then they would have a huge interest in protecting that. And there's a lot of ways you could do this. You could, you could turn into a prescription regime. You could track your users in some way. It all depends on how the liability regime would develop, but it would definitely develop in, in some way. So with on the user side, um, what changes? Well, as I mentioned before, one of the first things is, is people can access drugs and use them responsibly uh, for the purposes of enjoyment. Uh, when it comes to people who are problematic users, one of the most important things is we kind of bring them out of the shadows. If you know anything about drug addiction, especially opium addiction, it's sort of a 
vicious cycle of a learned response to sort of lack of anything better to do in your life. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it, but the way we best think about it now is tr being addicted to opium is kind of like having OCD. Um, the reason that you wash your hands 10 times a day, 10 times a day, or maybe a hundred times a day is because it, it takes- Maybe you, not the best example right now. No, yes, exactly. But in right general, yes, I'm in with general, you. Yes, in general, yes. But the reason, the reason you turn off the light is because it, it takes away some of your anxiety and your brain has sort of learned this response to the anxiety that's created when you don't turn off that, that light. So when you think about anything in your life that causes you anxiety, if you don't do it, and everyone kind of has things like this, like I sleep with a white noise machine, and it was things like this. And so um, if it causes you anxiety, if you don't do it, that's sort of what people who are on addicted opiates are like. And they often have a criminal record, so they can't enjoy anything else in life. They can't they can't get a job. Um, and the only thing left to them that gives them any happiness is heroin. So they live in a sort of shadowy existence in the underworld. Bringing them into the light and saying, you know, you're a heroin user. That's fine. We're here to help. This is a legal drug. But here are all the products to help you and the social systems to bring them out. And we have some of them now. But I also imagine if a legalization, you know, an anti-prohibition movement started, it would have some element of viewing drug addicts as human beings, which is the most important part of this entire equation. So getting them the help that they need is what is vitally important in the criminal justice system is never the help that any addict needs. And so th we, then we think about ways of getting off of these drugs. Look at the stop smoking systems that we have out there. We have all these these products to stop smoking, different sorts. Um, that kind of stuff would certainly exist when it would come to opiates. There's nothing, everything about this is better. It's 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 astounding to, when you when I was writing this, being like you know talking about this quote unquote science fiction universe where we don't take the incredible drastic step of putting people in cages for this drug that that could harm them and other people use harmlessly, and just think about what could be. So, what are some of the lesser appreciated uh, costs and benefits that people ought to consider when uh, when imagining a world where? Uh, drug legalization, full drug legalization has occurred? Police. Um, I think that the... Yeah, what, what changes with the relationship between people and police? I think the line, if you think about officer friendly um, in Norman Rockwell paintings and then officer shut the F up in today's America, that line comes right through the drug war. And one of the reasons for that is because the idea that you could be doing something legal right now, the policeman is thinking because you're you could be on drugs or holding drugs or something. And the problem with fighting a war on a substance that people use voluntarily is that when the crime, when the victim and the criminal are the same person, uh, you have to kind of disrupt so civil liberties to get at that victim slash criminal. Usually if someone has robbed your house, you call the cops and you say, someone has robbed my house, come into my house, take evidence and go find the person who robbed my house. But since you are both the victim and the criminal, they have to figure out ways of giving getting evidence from you because you don't want to give it up. So we see everything that we've seen in terms of the antagonistic relationship between citizens and the police and the growingly antagonistic relationship, especially for people of color, flying helicopters over your over your land, mandatory you know, blood tests, all these kind of invasive things, in addition to raids on your house and, and the militarized police that we see today. Imagine all of them have a different job now, and it's solving actual crimes. It sort of boggles your mind to think about cops 
uh, caring more about. And for most people, if you said my car got stolen or or someone tried to break in my house or my bike got stolen, you might not even call the police. Let's be honest. If your bike got stolen, would you call the police? Probably not because they're not even going to listen to you. They have better things to do. In m- many cases, those better things are breaking down people's doors to serve drug warrants and maybe get some cash in the product process via civil forfeiture. So then they actually respond to your stolen bike or your stolen car and murder investigation. So right now, the murder clearance rate, the level level at which we actually arrest someone for a murder, not with conviction or without, but even make an arrest, nationwide is about 60%, which is just astoundingly low. In cities like Chicago, Baltimore, it's in the 30s, where anyone is even arrested for these murders. Yet their drug task force, their vice squads are massive groups of cops uh, who are in charge, who are fighting this drug war. Imagine if we gave them a different job. It would make a massive change. And then you would have other effects too. I've said this when I in my gun policy work where you can't imagine a gun policy that could be re- reasonably passed that would do more to curb violence than ending the drug war. And so, I mean, it wouldn't happen immediately. And I say in my chapter where I imagine it's 15 years out, it, we've been breaking the inner city via a lot of things for a long time. So putting it back together would take a lot. But ending the drug war would be one of the most important things for, for getting it on the right track. And I would imagine... Uh, with respect to property crimes, with uh, crimes against individuals perpetrated by other individuals, uh, that the relationship between bystander and the police could improve dramatically. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another one is is the even with the going back to the gun point, uh, a lot of the conduits of illegal shipments of guns. Uh, being traded, say, in the inner city are coming through the drug dealers. So they're already shipping the drugs in, so they also bring in the guns. So I actually think that we would actually lower the amount of illegal guns that would be around there. So it's you know it's not all benefits, like I said. I mean, there, there will be more users and there will be more problematic users. I mean, alcoholism probably went down during Prohibition. Alcohol use went down during Prohibition. We don't have really good data, but we try and me- measure like cirrhosis of the liver. It probably went down. But at what cost? And and now that question needs to be asked about the prohibition regime we're living in today. Trevor Burris is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.